updates. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Business and finance in the first half hour of the program and money and politics in the second. In the headlines this morning, Rupert Murdoch and Fox drop the bid for Time Warner. The Polish foreign minister shakes up Wall Street and stocks tumble. Disney earnings beat estimates. And two leading strategists here see a 15% rally in China stocks. We'll counter that with a prominent call yesterday for a 10% fall in the Shanghai Composite. Well, to get us rolling, though, first, some audio food for thought. It's a tough thing to do under hostile circumstances, and again, I can only speculate that that, uh, Rupert didn't want to pursue it under hostile circumstances. That's the Disney chief, Bob Iger, after announcing strong earnings. Well, I'm obviously pleased with the performance this quarter. It was the highest quarter from an EPS perspective in the history of the company. Strong earnings from the studios, the broadcast networks, and the parks, including, he said, Hong Kong. Also, locally, retailers say the cut in mainland visitors will definitely lead to a cut in Hong Kong jobs. And the privacy commissioner says telemarketers are running amok in Hong Kong. Guests on the program this morning include BlackRock's John Saunders on Hong Kong real estate. Satyajit Das, a former derivatives trader, will be along to say that credit is running wild globally. Nitin Dialda from Mandarin Capital will weigh in on markets, and Professor La Chi Kuang from Hong Kong University will join us for a look at constitutional reform. In the markets in Asia this morning, the Australian uh, index is down about four points. That's really not much change. Uh, in Seoul, the Kospi is also down just a scant three points. That's a, a drop of about um, almost uh, one-tenth or two-tenths of one percent. The dollar-yen is now at 102.60, so not too much change there. Despite the uh, big fall in Wall Street, we didn't see a lot of safe haven buying. Gold, for instance, wasn't up a lot. Oil wasn't up a lot. Um, the dollar did gain a little but not all that much. And uh, we see the euro now at 1.3372. So yesterday around 134, today around 133. The pound at 13 Hong Kong dollars and 8 cents. So let's take a look at the news flow. And then we'll bring in our guests, the first of which will be John Saunders from BlackRock. Well, 21st Century Fox has withdrawn its huge bid for Time Warner. It was a $75 billion bid. Fox chief Rupert Murdoch says he's pulling out because Time Warner's board refused to engage in talks and the environment was hostile. The Fox share price also had fallen 11% since the offer, making the bid a little less tenable. Here's Bloomberg's John Ehrlichman. Fox, from the beginning of this process, was going to be reluctant to raise its offer, and certainly the expectation was from many investors that that is what we would see. But the language that Time Warner used from the outset of this process, not language that would suggest we're holding out for a higher offer, but just the language that they weren't interested in doing a deal, and then to take further action, essentially through regulatory filings to maybe make life more difficult for Fox, I think... As clearly as that statement from Rupert Murdoch on Fox is, they weren't ready for all the potential questions they would have to answer on this on this story of where this goes next. Back to the Disney chief, Bob Iger. He said it's not easy when the firm being acquired really doesn't want you. 
My reaction is a quick one, and I can only speculate, but I, I'm guessing that the, the offer that was made, as we know, was not well received. And uh, Rupert, I'm, I'm also guessing, must have determined that unless Time Warner was willing to engage, um, he was going to have a hard time accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish. It's a tough thing to do under hostile circumstances. And again, I can only speculate that, uh, that uh, Rupert didn't want to pursue it under hostile circumstances. In dropping the bid, Fox then authorized a $6 billion repurchase of its own shares. That might mean that Fox does not return to try to make a higher bid for Time Warner. A tie-up between the two, by the way, would have reshaped the U.S. media industry. It would have given them bargaining power with the cable operators, such as Comcast and Time Warner Cable. Those two are themselves in the process of a merger. A Wall Street stock sold off amid concerns over escalating tensions in Ukraine. The Polish foreign minister said Russian forces were poised to pressure or invade Ukraine. The S&P 500 dropped 1% to 1920. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 139 points to 16,429. Both indices were down a lot more than that. They did manage to come back a little. Uh, for instance, the Dow was down almost 200 points uh, at the bottom, coming back again to lose. 139. And the Chicago Board Options Volatility Index, the VIX, it jumped 12%. Market timer Tom DeMarc says the S&P 500 is poised to drop 16 to 17% in a long-awaited correction. We're seeing that we saw the same thing in March of 2000 and in October of 2007 as we did the first week in July. Yeah, if you looked at the, the peak in July of 2007 aligns to the day, the recent peak that we've had in, in the U.S. market, in the NASDAQ market, to the day, we'll probably get a good pullback now. He's the same uh, guy that called yesterday for a big drop in the Shanghai Composite Index. I had the story, but not his voice. Well, today we've got it. And he's saying expect the Shanghai Composite to drop about 10%. We think because of yesterday's strength over a weekend, markets really uh, tend to reassess themselves. And if we, we recorded an up opening yesterday, and I think that... Uh, both the past two days, and as a result, we're giving the market maybe one or two additional days of possible minor new high, but we see exhaustion coming. Uh, it's been too fast and, and too steep, and uh, we should see a correction. China stocks have rallied about 10% over the past month. Another well-known China strategist, Che Chung-hye from Value Partners, says he's more bullish on China stocks now than he's been in some six years, all the way back to the crisis. He sees a gain in the Shanghai Composite of 15% by the end of the year. But let's go back to Mr. DeMarc and how his system works. We've developed indicators over the last 40 years that are sensitive to trend exhaustion, which is really the antithesis of what most, most uh, technical or technicians apply to the market. Uh, normally, the tools they use are reactive rather than proactive, and because of our uh, four-plus decades of uh, uh, work in, in the industry has been primarily on the on the buy side. We've had to anticipate tops and bottoms before they occur, mm. so we're usually selling into strength um, and buying into weakness as opposed to buying or selling after a top and buying after a bottom. So we go a little bit away from the news flow just to talk a little bit about this trade school stuff. People look at technical analysis. And this guy is not a technician, but he is a market timer. And he doesn't make a call. He just says, this is what the numbers tell me. And he says that his system has worked very well on the Shanghai Composite. 
we found that there's a, a tendency, a marked tendency, I think it's aligned more with psychology of traders and uh, their activity. Uh, and we were able to identify what we perceive to be as likely areas of trend exhaustion. And uh, we've applied it to most markets worldwide as well as individual securities. Um, in, if you go back to December of, uh, of 2012, for example, in the Shanghai market, uh, we were there at the low and then subsequently at the February 7th high. We uh, identified that as exhaustion just as we did in, in June and July of that uh, 2013 at the bottoms. And we were able to successfully identify every top and bottom. It's, it's been all documented in the media. So this market has probably been the most sensitive to our indicators. So that is Tom DeMarc of DeMarc Analytics. Also, China Merchant Securities was out overnight saying that the strong move by the Hong Kong dollar. So you know that we've been at the strong end of the convertibility range. Well, they say that this strong move indicates that China stocks will rally 15 percent. Well, Hong Kong property prices have come back about 5% after dropping the same amount over the past 12 months. And transactions have picked up pretty sharply of late. July transactions, for instance, almost 8,000. And that's a lot higher than what we saw of around three or 4,000 earlier uh, in this recent cycle. We're joined now on the program by John Saunders, BlackRock's Managing Director and Head of Asian Real Estate. John, good morning. Good morning to you. Long time since we had you on the program. And your move to BlackRock, so a kind of a, a virgin move from the new firm. Um, what do you make of this recent move up in Hong Kong uh, property prices? Yeah, my concern is uh, whether or not it's sustainable. I think the the basic problem that we've got still remains, which goes all the way back to having a currency that's pegged to the US dollar. So if you import huge growth from China and you pay for it with a uh, monetary policy that's US-based and designed to try and stimulate a uh, a low growth or a no growth economy when you've had huge growth in China that causes excessive inflation. Then of course what happens is China slows down and we're now starting to look at uh, when will the US raise rates and if that's the killer for the market if China continues to be weak and US continues to look like they may raise rates um, then you get the flip side of the coin, like 93, 94. That's that the worry. Be, that could be, um, you know, a real worry for us. Absolutely. Uh, however, uh, the thesis doesn't seem to be holding up at the moment because it looks like the China economy is actually picking up a little bit of steam now, not slowing down. And it also looks like in the U.S. economy that um, interest rates going up will be perhaps further out because we haven't really seen a move in wages. And Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, has said that's kind of number one on her radar. Agreed. I mean, look, if the, the, the way we'll sort of pull this off, for want of a better word, I mean, we've already seen significant price corrections in the Hong Kong market. We've already seen very, very uh, significant reductions in volumes. So in some respects, we've had a partial correction. The question as to whether or not this is all of it and whether these sort of recent small gains are going to hold depends exactly on what you're saying, uh, which is whether or not, you know, the U.S. raises rates faster than uh, China recovers. That's all it comes down to, really. And what we see is developers offering some pretty nice discounts. Um, does the way they move on new projects, does that indicate, uh, you know, presumably they know a bit more about all this than we do. Uh, does that indicate a uh, future direction, what they do with discounts? Yeah, look, I, I think it does to some degree. I mean, the, everybody watches the developers here very carefully when they start to discount. You know, I mean, they're, 
they're in the business of making a profit for their shareholders. So they don't discount out of uh, a sense of charity. They discount out of a sense of necessity, and that's fair enough. And they're very good businesses and very good businessmen. So really, I think where we – the bigger picture, though, is what happens in the secondary market. And obviously, you know, in addition to all the issues that we have over rates versus China growth, the other thing that's sitting sort of in the background there is all the changes that uh, the government made in terms of uh, stamp duty that have been putting a, a dampener on the market as well. Some of the China developers that we've seen with their earnings out in the past few days haven't been all that good. They've been missing. Um, do you expect that to continue in China? <clears throat> I think for the time being. I mean, your point that the numbers may be getting slightly better in China. Um, I don't think we've necessarily seen enough data to prove whether that's a trend and whether that's sustainable. But it doesn't surprise that the China developers are, are struggling. I mean, the, the sales volume in China is also substantially down. The sentiment is weak. So if the bulk of your business comes from pre-selling units and all of a sudden your pre-sale rates drop substantially, then you you know you 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 are likely to miss, and I think that's a trend that is likely to continue over the the course of the next few quarters. Uh, investors sold off Chongqing the other day after its earnings. Uh, it's selling a lot of flats in Montvert at the moment. Uh, but as you look at the earnings from the Hong Kong developers, um, what's been your impression? Yeah, look, I think the same. I don't think anybody's having an easy time out there. I mean, the great thing about the Hong Kong developers is they're fabulously well capitalized. Um, So balance sheets are incredibly strong. Um, You know, they may have some near-term earning issues, but there's, uh, you know, the the underlying businesses are still extremely strong. But, you know, going back to the market, notwithstanding, you know, your comment, which is fair about maybe US rate rises get delayed a little from where people thought, maybe there's a little bit more traction in China off a low base, although I've yet to be completely convinced of that. I really don't think the, you know, I'd be very surprised if the recent gains in the residential market in Hong Kong were sustainable, unfortunately. I'd like to say something different, but I don't think it, 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 it really um, bears muster. So you say that the developers here um, are pretty cashed up and uh, they're not really suffering from a lot of leverage. Uh, the reverse could be said to be true of the developers in the mainland. They're mired in debt. Um, but back to Hong Kong, do you worry that we have anything of a credit bubble in Hong Kong? No, I, I, I don't. I think the issues in China are well reported and well known. I mean, you know, we work in the private equity markets, and so we, uh, you know, w- we see the private companies as well as the public companies. In fact, we tend to see probably more of the private companies than the public companies. Even though the market is pretty weak in Hong Kong, um, we're really not coming across anybody in Hong Kong who's anything close to being a pressured seller. But I think in the mainland, it's quite different. The opportunities that we're seeing in the mainland are quite significant and, and quite varied. And I think, uh, you know, that's evidenced by you know, what, what everyone knows, which is the levels of borrowing and, uh, you know, the, the, the stress on finances are much greater north of the border than they are south of the border. So you don't worry too much about uh, people having taken a lot of loans in Hong Kong because it was really cheap. You could get loans for around 1%. If you banks offering you a million dollars for 1%, uh, which seems astonishing, uh, that some of that money's found its way into China and that that could backfire not only in the banks but people here. Yeah, if you were to pick one thing that is a concern, it is that um, – 
mortgage rate issue because people have said, you know, I've said this before, you get your 1% loan and then your loan goes to 3%. There's two ways of looking at that. You either say, well, it's only 3%, that's really not terribly expensive for borrowing, or you say, well, my monthly mortgage bill just went up by three times, which is a lot more frightening. Um, I'm not so worried about the amount of money that's gone from Hong Kong into China. I think the people who are potentially under pressure, unfortunately, are the first-time buyers and the people more at the bottom of the ladder um, who've borrowed relatively heavily um, to buy first sure, apartments at high prices. You're talking about people who didn't put 30% down, who went through exactly. the, the Hong Kong Mortgage Corporation. Exactly. Okay, but there's some insurance levels there. Um, just briefly on prices, mm. uh, Centerline says that um, is, if that's your phone, can you put it in your pocket? Uh, Centerline says that prices have picked up 4.4% since uh, June, so that's pretty rapid in just a month and a half or so. Some of the analysts have been raising their, their forecasts. Uh, some of the houses had called for drops of 10%, uh, but analysts from Citigroup to J.P. Morgan Chase now and others uh, have actually raised their forecasts a little bit. Where is BlackRock on, on prices, say, over the next year in Hong Kong? Well, we're on the private equity side, we don't make sort of public forecasts from, from our side of the business. Um, but from, you know, the business that we're running uh, in terms of uh, buying direct real estate, we think there's, there is more pressure to come. Uh, you've already had a significant correction, so it's not totally un, uh, lacking in understanding that there should be some degree of small recovery from that. The concern for us is whether it's actually sustainable or not. Yeah. Okay, John, thanks very much. You've got a crowded uh, program today, four guests, so just gave everybody about 10 minutes. Thanks very much for joining us here. John Saunders, the Managing Director and Head of Asian Real Estate for BlackRock. The time is now 20 minutes after 8 o'clock. Oh, yeah, it's a rich man's world for sure. You know, the central banks say there's no credit bubble, but Das says there is. And we're joined on the line now by Satyajit Das, former investment banker and derivatives expert turned financial commentator and author with too many books to name in this segment. Das, good morning. Good morning. Are you concerned that there is a global credit bubble? Look, I think fundamentally we've had a period when we've had very, very low interest rates. And as your previous guest was mentioning, that's encouraged people to borrow. And that is the first problem that we have. We have more and more debt. And as the BIS announced a little while ago in their annual report, debt has been going up. That's number one. And that's debt as a percentage of GDP rather than debt in absolute terms, which you'd expect to go up anyway. The second element is because particularly interest rates are low, people are chasing any sort of return. Now, Brian, I understand that essentially you are getting very close to retirement and you're about to retire. So this probably is something relevant to you. What a lot the, of retirees are up. How does that news get all the way down to Sydney? My goodness. Oh, I'm very well informed, as they say. Mm, yeah. But the problem that people have in retirement is they're looking for things which are probably less risky, like government bonds or corporate bonds. And the returns on that have fallen very, very sharply. So people are now pushing up the risk curve quite aggressively to get any sort of return that they can. And this is universally known as the dash for trash. And what that has done is basically led to, firstly, more debt, more risky debt, and at the same time, the returns available on that to compensate for the risk has come down. And that's a pretty toxic 
classic combination that we've created. And we've been here before, as you know, in the run-up to 2007, in the run-up to 93-94, in the run-up to 97-98. So it's not an unfamiliar story. Now, the real question here is, if rates go up, what happens? And that is the concern that, and I'm not alone in this, there are a number of people who have voiced this concern, and I noticed with interest your previous guest and you were having a discussion, which was around the same theme, what happens when interest rates go up. And that is the problem that we have. And also, balancing that on the other side is the whole point of this policy of low interest rates was to kickstart the real economy and get growth going, get income growth going, all of those things. And you say that's not happening. That's right. So you've got this pincer movement where the real economy isn't improving, but you've got all this financial leverage issues on the other side. And that's not a nice place to be, I suppose, is the best way I would put it. But, you know, most of the time markets work. Uh, we saw that markets did not work in 2007, 2008, and we suffered a maybe once in 50 or 60 years uh, um, catastrophe, a kind of great financial uh, um, chasm. Uh, but at the moment, every time there's a hint of wages going higher in the U.S. or if there's a pickup in inflation, you do start to see people pulling back from high yield, uh, selling down some of the high-yielding stocks and a uh, correction in the stock market. And I can tell you on this program, I have so many people like you who are nervous that it almost feels like if this many people are nervous, how can we be in a bubble? Well, it's actually fascinating. I saw a memo from a hedge fund manager the other day, which was quite humorous. He said, I'm so bearish, I have to be bullish. <laughs> so essentially, it, Everyone it is wants a bit to be like a contrarian. that. <laughs> yes. And I think the real issue is that this can go on for a very, very long time. As we know from places like Japan, which is a relevant example to a degree, you can keep interest rates low for a very, very long period of time. And what you're doing is really deferring the adjustment that we never really had post-2007, 2008. You're quite correct, the financial markets melted down and we had this short period of instability, but then the low interest rates and the government support sort of bailed us through that. And we really didn't make the adjustments in terms of structural adjustments, in terms of debt levels, global imbalances, financialization, the too big to fail issue, in other words, and the entitlements in Western society. So those problems are there. And we keep sort of just trying to cover them up. And the question is when that day of reckoning will come. And it will come at some point in time. But I have to say, it's not going to be any time soon. It's going to, this could go on for a very, very long period of time. So it's not just that uh, individuals and institutions have loaded up on, on things like high-yield bonds, like we've mentioned, but it's everything. It's corporates. It's um, mergers and acquisitions uh, where companies have used their high stock uh, prices or the value to, uh, as currency to buy other companies. And I was interested to see that one of the examples you cited was Facebook moving on WhatsApp. Flesh that out for us. Well, I think it's interesting because what we're seeing, as you correctly point out, companies are borrowing very heavily. And it's interesting to see companies like Facebook, reminiscent of, I suppose, the run-up to 2001 and the internet bubble, buying WhatsApp for about $19 billion. Now, what most people looked at was, you know, the strategic issues of what they were getting. But it seems to me that Facebook was paying 8% of its own entire market value for getting a presence in mobile devices. And it was based on such optimistic future growth rates and profitability. 
And essentially, they were looking at something like a doubling or tripling in smartphone numbers to broaden its clientele. And you remember the arguments about how many eyeballs would look at sites and so forth in the run-up to 2001. And that, to me, suggested that there is a little bit of froth, if not a bubble, in certain sectors. But to be honest, that's one part of the equation, and that worries me less, because mostly it's companies using their own stock, as you said, to buy somebody else. It's not real cash-changing hands. But what is more alarming to me is companies who've used the low rates to finance buybacks of their own shares. To give you some perspective of that, American companies have bought back something approaching just short of a trillion dollars of their own equity. And almost all of that has been funded by debt. And that is completely reliant on these low interest rates to make it work. And the other fascinating thing for the corporate sector, which again, doesn't get a lot of airplay, is two aspects of low interest rates. One is you get this double benefit with low interest rates. Companies with debt pay very little interest, so their profits go up. And then what happens is their shares go up, so particularly private clients and institutions borrow against the value of the shares. So you get the double effect of interest rates, which obviously get amplified if rates go up. But the other interesting thing is Robert Buckland, who's an analyst at Citigroup, made a very, very interesting observation. He said low interest rates for companies has a real problem for the real economy. Because what has actually happened is people have gone into stocks looking for dividend yield. And David Rosenberg, who's a fairly famous analyst, remarked quite uh, humorously that these days people bought stocks for yield and basically bought bonds for capital gain, which is kind of a reversal of that process. But if people go into stocks for yield, there's huge pressure on the companies to expand earnings all the time. And because they can't do it with revenue growth, what they're doing is cutting staff. Yeah. And that's where the major savings are coming in. Well, that, that's, that, that's fact, bad for people, but it could be good for companies in that uh, they have uh, made themselves lean. And that's a big reason why they've announced uh, higher profits is they've cut costs quite a bit. And they have a lot of but cash. But, Brian, it's kind of a perverse argument because essentially 60 to 70 percent of economies are consumption. So if people are losing their jobs and not getting income growth, Where's that going to come from, and where are these companies going to sell their products? And this is particularly something that we've seen right around the world with uh, advanced economies, that the gap between the rich and the poor is, um, you know, has moved out to a, a fairly wide mark. Uh, do you worry that that causes social instability? Look, I think that obviously will have an impact on social uh, stability, and there's no doubt about that. And I think the interesting thing about the debate on inequality, which, as you know, was prompted by Thomas Piketty's book, Capital, it's interesting, when the book first came out in France, it didn't get a lot of airplay, but when the English translation came out, it became a cause celebre. And I think that actually was not less about the book than about the context in which the book appeared. There is just this imminent sort of feeling that this inequality is not good. And there's a very good book, if if anybody's interested in reading, it's called The Spirit Level, written by two English journalists about five or six years ago, when they analyzed the effects of equality on society or inequality on society, and they found inequality is very bad for growth as well as stability. So those concerns are certainly there. And I think that is one of the things that retards growth along the way. But just coming back for a second to your comment about okay, the short, companies. Okay, short, short, because we're almost Very short. 
effectively, if you look at the revenue, sorry, I beg your pardon, the earnings gains of companies, only 20% of that has come from revenue gains. 80% has come from the cost side, and a lot of that's labor. Okay, Doss, uh, thanks very much. It's 8.30. We've got the news here, kind of a hard close to the program. Uh, have enjoyed these talks. We'll try to get you on one more time before I have to go in mid-September. That's Sajaji uh, Das, former investment banker turned financial commentator. Okay, briefly, uh, markets are just kind of mixed uh, right around the start line. In the weather, mainly cloudy with some showers, a few squally thunderstorms, maximum temperature about 31, light to moderate southerly winds, showery in the next few days. The news is next. Time for the latest in news. Here's Ben Chip. The Privacy Commissioner for Personal Data, Alan Chang, has called on the government to expand the Do Not Call register to include person-to-person calls. This comes after a survey by his office found that the frequency of such calls has increased drastically in recent years, and most people consider them a nuisance. Currently, users can list on the Do Not Call register to prevent unsolicited pre-recorded telephone messages, text messages, and fax messages, but not person-to-person calls. Mr. Chang said this should be changed. Over 80% of the respondents reported that these calls have caused them inconvenience. And 99, 99% of these people who reported inconvenience say that the calls actually uh, cause nuisance to them. Half of them actually say the nuisance is, is, is a lot of nuisance and something that they cannot tolerate. So I think on the one hand, uh, the effectiveness of the calls uh, have been deteriorating. And on the other hand, uh, the calls have been uh, giving a greater nuisance to the general public. An American Major General Harold Green has been killed in an attack by an Afghan soldier at a military training school near the capital, Kabul. He's the most senior American officer to be killed since the Vietnam War. The BBC's Tom Esselmont in Washington has more. It's understood Major General Green was helping prepare Afghan forces for the time when U.S. coalition troops leave the country. From the end of this year, just under 10,000 American troops will remain, with all withdrawing by the end of 2016. The Pentagon said it believes a serving Afghan soldier fired the shots which killed the general and injured more than a dozen other soldiers. They include a senior German officer and the Afghan commander of the British-led academy. The soldier who opened fire was shot dead after the attack. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, it's 8.33. You're listening to Money for Nothing here on Radio 3. I'm Brian Curtis. So business and finance in the first part of the program. We focus a little bit more on money and politics in the second half. We'll also take a look at markets. And our guests in this half hour include Nitin Dialdas, who's the chief investment officer at Mandarin Capital. And later on, we'll be talking about electoral reform here, a constitutional reform with Professor Lachi Kuang, associate professor of the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at Hong Kong University. But first... The news. Japan has accused China of dangerous acts, warning that they could have unintended consequences. In its annual defense white paper, Tokyo made it clear that despite hints that it is open to rapprochement with Beijing, it doesn't intend to give ground. RTHK's Sean Kennedy has more. The white paper didn't mince its words. 
calling China's adoption of an air defense identification zone late last year a profoundly dangerous act that may cause unintended consequences in the region. It also described China's action in maritime disputes as high-handed and called on Beijing to observe international norms. It said the arms build-up and increased military activity by unnamed neighboring countries presented security challenges for Japan and the region as a whole, noting that China's defense budget has soared fourfold over the past decade, while Japan's has shrunk. The defense ministry in Beijing has responded by accusing Japan of exaggerating the threat posed by its military spending to justify its own build-up. It said it was assessing the white paper. Here in Hong Kong, the Privacy Commissioner is calling for the law to be amended to allow people to put a stop to what's being considered a rising bombardment of unsolicited calls from telemarketers. That's after a survey by the Privacy Commission found that one in five people got at least six calls like that in a week. About 80% of respondents considered these a nuisance. The Commissioner, Alan Chiang, told RTHK that he's already proposed legal changes to the government. At present, we have, uh, under the administration of the Communications Authority, a do not call registered uh, to allow people to register their telephone numbers. So and after registrations, uh, people who uh, would send in uh, electronic messages like fax, uh, song messages, and pre-recorded telephone messages would not be able to do so. So that is a very effective means of uh, warding off uh, unsolicited commercial messages. But that register at present do not include person-to-person telephone calls. So I would suggest, and I make that suggestion to to the Secretary for Commerce and Industry um, uh, Development, that the existing register should be expanded to include those person-to-person telemarketing calls. But is it just down to the members of the public to then um, take the initiative to say, right, okay, I want my number... Uh, off the list, or are these numbers also being sold by mobile phone companies? Um, you have to register the tenant number with the Communications Authority um, uh, of, of the Hong Kong government. Uh, if that um, has been done and is supported by a relevant uh, legislative amendment, then it would be an offence for people uh, not to check that registered to make sure that the calls they make are indeed something outside the register list. If they um, disregard the uh, registered call list and make a call, that would become an offence under the uh, unsolicited uh, electronic messages ordinance. The Privacy Commissioner, Alan Chiang. Meantime, Hugh Chiverton asked Charles Mock, the IT sector's LegCo representative, if he supports regulating person-to-person marketing calls. Yes, I do support it because I see that the UEMO, the Unsolicited Electronic Messaging Ordinance, has been around for years and uh, actually uh, there has been uh, zero case of uh, successful prosecution. In fact, uh, uh, the, the only case that has been brought to the court uh, was only uh, was actually just the, the, the accused was actually just acquitted uh, about two weeks ago. And uh, that, was, that is uh, a bit hilarious considering that the nuisance has been caused by uh, these calls and uh, and also other unsolicited messages uh, over the years. But uh, obviously, the law is ineffective uh, if uh, if there's nobody being seems to be uh, being affected by it and the situation uh, or or being uh, successfully.
be prosecuted by this law and uh, over the years, the many years that this law has been around and it's uh, quite uh, ridiculous that the government still continues to say that there's no need to even consult uh, and, and change this law. So I do believe that uh, there needs to be more strengthening, strengthening of the uh, uh, law and particularly regarding the person-to-person unsolicited calls. Uh, however, whether or not, just simply by putting uh, unsolicited person-to-person calls into the uh, uh, the uh, do not call list, uh, whether or not that in itself is going to be sufficient, I have some doubt. I do believe that, that I, I do. I have a feeling that there needs to be more than uh, just doing that because there's been a lot of speculations around in the industry that uh, actually there are merchants out there, people who are actually using the do not call or do not fax and so on. This list, these lists, and actually uh, using the numbers in these lists to particularly target them to to call because they know that these numbers are valid. Uh, so uh, whether or not these do not call or do not fax and so on, this space Legislator Charles Mock. To international news and Gaza, where a three-day ceasefire is holding for now, it's intended to pave the way for indirect negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. The aim is to secure a longer-term peace deal for the Palestinian territory. The U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry says he hopes the ceasefire will lead to a better life for Palestinians. What we want to do is support the Palestinians in their desire to improve their lives and to be able to open crossings and get food in and reconstruct and have greater freedom. But that has to come with a greater responsibility towards Israel, which means giving up rockets, moving into a different place. American Secretary of State John Kerry An American major general has been killed in an attack at a military training facility in Kabul in Afghanistan. More than a dozen others were wounded when a man believed to be a member of the Afghan National Security Forces opened fire. He was shot dead. Pentagon officials have not yet released the name of the U.S. general who died, but he's the most senior American officer to be killed in Afghanistan since coalition forces invaded in 2001. David Sedney served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan stand until last year. It's very tragic, uh, the fact that uh, uh, such a high-ranking person uh, would have lost their lives in in this kind of attack uh, is uh, really out of the ordinary. At the same time, uh, as uh, the forces are drawing down, uh, in certain ways, uh, the danger gets greater for the forces that remain. Some of the early reporting is that it's an insider attack. Others, that there was some kind of dispute among Afghan forces. I think what it does show is that the overall uh, element of danger uh, for those forces that are remaining uh, may be higher uh, because of the drawdown. This is Money for Nothing. The time is now 19 minutes before 9 o'clock. Let's get a quick check of the markets. The Nikkei is down 68 points in early trading at 15,251. Most of the markets are edging a bit lower. Australia down about a third of a percent. Seoul down about one-fifth of a percent. Didn't mention gold other than to say earlier that gold was not serving as a safe haven uh, with the concerns about Ukraine and Russia. Gold is trading at $1,287.80. It's a little bit higher. Uh, This morning from the New York close, but it had dropped a little bit there. And oil price is now $104.80, so not seeing a spike uh, in oil prices uh, as well. 
So you're listening to the program, and we get back to um, interacting with some of our guests. Welcome now, Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, to our studios. Nitin, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, nice to have you on the program. Um, looking at Hong Kong and and uh, China, because we've had a torrid rally here of late, we're actually seeing uh, quite a lot of outperformance compared to the West. You know, the DAX in Germany has fallen 10% or so, um, seeing U.S. stocks uh, come off uh, a few percentage points. The Dow is now negative for the year, yet we've perked up. Why? I mean, if you look over the last few years, you would have noticed that the American and the Western markets actually rallied while Asia's actually pulled back and held back. I think now we're starting to see a bit of the reversal of money starting to come back into Asia because it has underperformed. People are looking for a bit of outperformance. Dow, I mean, the Dow, the NASDAQ, the European markets, the rally's actually taken them to a level where they're starting to get a bit overpriced. And value seemingly coming in on the China and the Hong Kong side and the rest of Asia, actually. I mentioned that a couple of uh, strategists uh, had come out with some pretty positive calls in the last day. Value Partners Group, um, which does run the best performing Greater China Equity Fund uh, over the past five years or so, has turned very bullish. And then you've got this guy, Tom DeMarc, who uh, is a um, kind of fatigue in trends uh, uh, prognosticator. He says that um, China stocks are going to drop. Where do you fit in? If you look at the – I tend to look more at the technicals, so I look at the charts. And the China and the Hong Kong markets are starting to break out. So to me, that suggests there is a bullish movement towards it. If you look at the Shanghai market, I think the next real resistance is probably at about 2,400. Um, Hong Kong's just broken above the 24,000, 24,500 range. And that, again, next one you're looking at could be anywhere into 25,500, 26,000. Once we get there, I think then we're going to have a look and see what – you know, where the markets came from there. So for the moment, uh, you think people would be prudent to stick with uh, this trend? I think definitely for the short term. Um, wait until we get to the third quarter, uh, th- sorry, th- third, fourth quarter. Then people might again look at rebalancing, hoping that the story is going to play through. At the moment, like I said, it's more, I think, a cash moving out of the US, out of Europe and trying to find a place to park it. You're not getting returns out of fixed income. I mean, government bonds are negligible. So where do you go? You've got to go for where the undervalued, underperforming areas have been, and hence we're looking at Asia at the moment. What do you make of this rush of funds into Hong Kong? We've seen the HKMA have to defend the Hong Kong dollar or to fight it back from appreciating too much for many, many weeks now. It's not the first time it's happened. It won't be the last time it happens. Um, As I said, it's where you're going to find that safe haven, where you're going to find the next market that's moved that hasn't moved, where you're finding a little bit of value. You've seen some positive earnings from companies like Hutchison, you're starting to see, obviously, an attraction back to Chinese equities. The through train that's going to happen between Hong Kong and China attracts a little bit of interest in that. So I think that Russian money has come trying to get in early on ahead of the, tree, uh, the through train that's going to be implemented. And, you know, I think, as I said, it will continue for at least the short term, third, fourth quarter, and then the people will restock. As somebody who looks at, at stocks and investments, uh, do you also look very closely at economic performance? Are you in the camp that thinks that uh, stock prices move, um, you know, in some sort of tandem with the economy, or do you set that aside? I do look at economic performance, and actually what we do is a lot of the stuff that we are doing is more economic-related. But when I'm looking at equity-specific I, while I take stock of the uh, the economies, I would look. I think equities tend to move ahead of them, the economy. 
So you yeah. want to be in early and you want to look at the equities earlier, and that tends to be a guide of where the That's very interesting, be. yes, because uh, we've seen in many, many cases um, stocks performing badly in economies that are growing yes. 7, 8, 9, 10%, China, Vietnam, a couple of examples. Uh, uh, but you say that actually we shouldn't look to the economy for the lead, we should look to the stocks for the lead, and that that will give you a picture of where the economy is moving. So if I could bring this back to the money that's rushed in and the fact that the Hong Kong dollar, if we didn't have the peg, would be stronger yeah. – um, I'm about ready to talk to um, Professor Law about um, about uh, electoral reform here. There's a lot of unhappiness in Hong Kong that may or may not be linked to high prices here, high property prices and just generally inflation. Yeah. Does that concern you? I think definitely the political situation in Hong Kong concerns me, or the people's perception of the political situation does concern me a lot. Um, there is a lot of unrest. There is a lot of unhappy people. But at the same time... Well, there's not a lot of unrest, but there uh, are there are uh, tensions in yeah, society okay. here. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, unrest is probably a strong word. I yeah. agree. Um, but there is a lot of tension. And I think people, having said that, while they do have their tensions, they do still get on with their daily lives. And, you know, they come together and then they protest in a very peaceful manner and say they're not happy about these things. And then they got on with their lives again. So while there is that concern from how the outside world perceives it, I think on a general basis, you know, the people in Hong Kong are still getting on with their lives and still doing their business. So it doesn't really affect the economy as much as I think people are saying it's affecting the economy. Okay. Well, interesting, Nitin. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, we'd like to bring you back for sure. And we'll have another chat uh, perhaps a month down the road. Cool. Thanks Thank very much. Nitin Dialdis, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Well, if you've been listening to this program and listening to Hong Kong Today in the morning, just generally following the news, you'll, you'll know that um, groups of academics have come out with different versions of how the nominating committee can be constituted and how we can move to the next level on constitutional reform here. And the most recent group uh, of 13 academics followed a call by 18 academics who came up with a political reform proposal uh, to suggest public recommendation, a mechanism for that that would be in line with the basic law. And we're joined now for some discussion by Professor La Chi Kuang, Associate Professor the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at Hong Kong University. Professor, good morning. Good morning. Very nice to have you with us here in our studios. Uh, first, what do you make of the other group, the 13 academics that just came out in the last couple of days with their proposal? I think they, they work very hard and uh, come up with a proposal. I, I guess uh, it uh, definitely increased the participation of the, the public in the different parts or different uh, parts of the process of electing the chief executive uh, if we have one by 2017. So they have t taken a step in that direction. Uh, presumably, you feel that the step that you've taken uh, pushing for public recommendation is stronger. Um, can you elucidate why? Well, I, I would say, uh, you, you know, the pub uh, a fraction of the public is uh, demanding for public nomination, but uh, the the Beijing government and the um, for establishment camps in Hong Kong already say no, and uh, the Bar Association, etc., would say that is uh, not consistent with the basic law. So, so if we want to increase the legitimacy of the uh, election and also increase the participation of the public, public sort of uh, norm, uh, uh, what we call a recommendation will be the middle of the ground to to increase those participation. 
Yes, if I could just ask you to have your phone uh, put on the floor in your pocket, uh, if it's out there, we're getting a little bit of interference. Um, yes, uh, one of the things that um, I was just talking about uh, with Nitin was whether or not people are kind of rising to the the boiling level here. Um, you do a lot of social work. You understand people, how they feel at the grassroots level. What's your feeling on that? I would say that people are start worrying mm-hmm. and... Uh, that in fact uh, talks, although there's no action yet about like um, like emigration, um, uh, and uh, although they're not not actually taking taking concrete actions, but there, there've been more talks about it. So I I don't think the the pressure is coming in right now at this moment, but uh, by the end of or before the end of this month, when the Beijing government is going to. Uh, make decisions on the parameters of the 2017 election, uh, and if that is not acceptable in general sense to most of the people in Hong Kong, um, people will be becoming very pessimistic about the political situation in the coming years, and that may have an impact on the economy and also in us in our society. Is that the catalyst then for um, Occupy Central to step up a notch? Well, if that. Unfortunately, it was the decision of the Beijing government. I would say the, it will be very likely the Occupy Central will take place uh, pretty soon. You know, it seems that a lot of people are putting um, Hong Kong people into two camps, uh, represented by those who support Occupy Central and those who recently uh, turned out to um, sign a petition, uh, both physically and online, uh, saying that uh, they oppose it. Um, but the the fact is that there are a lot of people that could very much be against Occupy Central, but would not be for a kind of uh, plan that uh, leads to a sifting mechanism that would not allow candidates um, from across the board, from the Democratic camp, to get on the ballot. Um, who's speaking for those people? Well, if you count the numbers who who, who participate in the um, occupy, uh, occupying central and also those who are signing against it, they're, they're only less than two million people. And, and you know that... Uh, there are 3.5 million uh, registered voters in Hong Kong and 5.5 million people who are eligible to be become voters. So there are a lot of silent majority. Uh, I don't think they they are simply just apathetic, but but I would say they just don't know uh, what to say. And, 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 and somehow they, um, I, I would say they're just waiting. And uh, for... I guess when you talk to a lot of people, particularly like uh, middle class, they, they, they will be talking about uh, a genuine election, although they, they are not very much concerned uh, whether who will be get elected and, and they're not necessarily pro-establishment, uh, sorry, pro-democratic. Uh, and, and yet they will consider a fair and genuine election is important. So if the Beijing government uh, decide otherwise, I would say that will be quite disappointing in the majority of the public in Hong Kong. From those you know in the liaison office, uh, and really the China representatives are here, whether at the foreign ministry or elsewhere, do, do you sense that they feel the pulse of Hong Kong people? Or do you think that they're just hell-bent in the same way that the people who put together the white paper seemed hell-bent to, to say, look, you know, China is the boss and you're going to have to follow along on this one? I would say, well, there are definitely people in Beijing or in Hong Kong, in the liaison office, understand the the feelings of the people, the general public in Hong Kong. 
But I would say the, the consideration is more than that. Though, on one hand, the Beijing government has to consider the, the feelings of people in Hong Kong. And at the same time, they, they have their own agenda with regard to so-called national security and, and, and so forth. So, so it will be a matter of how to weight the risk. On one hand is if there is no universal suffrage, mean, mean, meaning there's a standstill, and uh, how difficult it would be to govern Hong Kong for the future as Hong Kong SAL government, on one hand. And on the other hand is they allow the risk that the pan-democrat would get into the the poll at the end at this, in universal suffrage and, what, and the risk of having elected somebody they do not find... Uh, acceptable. So, so it's a matter of weighting uh, the two risks and see whether they can take whichever one uh, they want. So, so it's a matter. It's very difficult to say. But, but, I, but I'm not optimistic because a lot of people who write so-called reports back to the Beijing, uh, many of them are thinking of what the leaders are thinking about, and so they write something they want to read. And uh, how how much or what portion will reflect the views of people in Hong Kong? I'm not very sure. Do I you expect- think that the, the Dem- Democrats uh, and also uh, the Hong Kong public would be um, would be happy with uh, perhaps just a, a vast expansion of the nominating committee um, so that it's much more democratically looking? Uh, uh, that that would be enough. That there isn't per se a direct uh, public uh, nomination. Well, if there is a very substantial improvement in terms of the the election basis of the uh, nomination committee. I would say people would be definitely be more happy. Would Would China, do you think, uh, sign off on something like that? Uh, I I really can't speak on, on Beijing, but I, I would say I'm not optimistic. It seems like an obvious compromise that isn't getting that much attention. Uh, most of the discussion of late has been focused on civil nomination. Well, I, I think because uh, well, the civil the civil nomination is um, is something recently, I guess. Uh, well, because some of people are, are going off for some vacation, and uh, and uh, and the recent uh, atmosphere, uh, the political atmosphere here is, uh, you can say, it's a little bit low pressure, and uh, and and people are still sort of wait and see. Uh, Kind of attitude. And just a final question, 20 seconds or so. Are you optimistic? No. Okay, I'll give you 18 <laughs> seconds. Why? <laughs> well, uh, because uh, the message that we are hearing from the so-called people who are closer to the Beijing, the, the message seems to be the Beijing government still uh, want to keep a very um, strong control and... and um, and which basically means they, they do not want any risk of uh, electing any pan-democrats. As evidenced by the white paper, mm-hmm. the writing on the wall. Okay, Professor, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Thank a you. program that is ostensibly a business and finance program, but in our expanded format, looking more at uh, news in the second half hour. That was Professor Lanchi Kuang, Associate Professor at Hong Kong University. We just have some time to slip in a little bit more news, uh, particularly Ukraine, since this did move markets overnight. For weeks, the main city in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk, has been largely beyond the control of the government in Kiev. Pro-Russian separatists are in charge there. But government forces are closing in. The BBC's David Stern in Kiev has this report. 
Well, in Donetsk, as we know, has been uh, surrounded by Ukrainian forces, but there's been some questions about when they were, if and when they would try to take the city. Apparently now there is some very heavy fighting in one of the districts in the city. The local mayor's office uh, issued a statement about four hours ago saying there was fighting in the Petrovsky district, but gunfire could be heard in other parts of the city and that there were reports of casualties, although these have been unconfirmed. And, of course, Donetsk is a very important city. It's one of the two main cities, since the largest city in the east is about a million people, although a lot of people, of course, have left and are leaving from there. David Stern reporting. A German court has dropped bribery charges against the head of Formula One racing, Bernie Eccleston, after he offered to pay 100 million U.S. dollars to settle the case. Mr. Eccleston had faced up to 10 years in prison. BBC's Stephen Evans reports from Berlin. The judge asked Mr. Eccleston if he had the means to pay the $100 million quickly. The boss of Formula One replied simply yes, and the judge then accepted the deal. Mr. Eccleston's lawyer said that this, in effect, cleared his client of bribing a Bavarian banker to steer the sale of a stake in Formula One in his direction. So wealthy is Mr. Eccleston that even paying $100 million doesn't dent his fortune. BBC's Stephen Evans with that report. You're listening to Money for Nothing, and that's our program for today. We'll just take you out with market action and then get the weather for you. Uh, markets are down, but not by too much. Half a percent in Tokyo, whereas uh, the Kospi in Seoul is flat. We are seeing a little bit of a pickup in gold this morning, $1,287.80 an ounce. And briefly, the Australian market is down about one-third of one percent. The weather today, mainly cloudy with showers, a few squally thunderstorms, the maximum temperature thirty. So a little bit cooler these past two days. The outlook showery through the end of the week. Thanks for listening. Morning Brew with Phil Whelan coming up next. But the news first at 9 o'clock.